Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Get out of save a, a nickel mode and get into make a dollar mode. Hello, this is Christopher Triumph. I'm back with another one of those Varvet International interviews. You're listening to it right now. And today's guest is Adam Carolla, American podcaster, comedian, author, movie maker, car connoisseur, carpenter, actor, TV host, etc., etc. And as a colleague of his in the podcast world, there's no doubt that he's been super important to establish this medium. According to the internet, he does hold the world record for most downloaded podcasts and even if that record is from 2011 and it might not stand anymore, he still is top five in the world or so. But who's counting? What's really interesting with Corolla is that he's such a jack-of-all-trades. I mean, in the Glendale studio where this interview takes place, there's about 10 shows produced. He tours around with his podcast. He produces movies. He has his own, like, wine or something. And he is also a frequent guest in various talk shows. I mean, he works a lot and he does it boldly. He doesn't really seem to care about risk and so forth. And that I want to talk to him about. His upbringing has been widely discussed. For instance, in a fantastic episode of the podcast Mental Illness Happy Hour from 2011, I really recommend it. And let's just say that Adam's childhood was pretty joyless and I guess also dysfunctional. His parents, or at least his mother, was depressed all through it, it seems. And the reason I bring that up now is that I want you to know this as it might not be completely explained in the interview. And speaking of which, I am completely aware that his Wikipedia page has a headline saying controversies, and uh, we're linking to that in the Acast app right now. However, we won't go that much into that during the coming 40 minutes, as I had so much else to ask about, and I only had about 45 minutes to interview him. That being said, time for the interview taped in Glendale, taped in Adam's studio on August 6th. 2015. Okay, roll the tape, please. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm a little stressed out, but uh, and a little nervous. Traveling, but... hectic schedule. Yes. What are you nervous about? Well, uh, this is a legendary place. You're a legendary guy. Do you feel legendary? <laughs> no. No, I wouldn't. I, I'm always surprised when anyone. I'm surprised when people say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do what Adam Carolla does or something. I'm always saying, why Why did they bring my name up? <laughs> so I don't know if it got back to Sweden or not, but I, I don't know. I, see, I can't um, – it's kind of tough because I can't tell you what society or people th- think of me because I'm living in me. Yeah. And uh, it's like I don't mind – the taste of my own spit, but I imagine everyone else would. You know what I'm saying? And then also, I grew up in such a way where I'm just not trained to really think about myself or what other people think of me. So I'm always surprised. But you can tell me. I I don't know. No, but the the funny thing about you is that you feel... uh, I mean, despite the fact that you grew up like you grew up, that you feel so fear... Perhaps fearless is the wrong word, but you seem very confident. That's my interpretation of you well i i think it's important for anyone listening to own what they're good at and then also when you're not good at something be realistic about that as well 
you know, so we all know that you should be very realistic about the things you're not that good at. If you're not very strong, you're not very good with your hands, don't go into bars and cause a lot of fights. You're going to get hurt. So, but on the other hand, if you're very good at it, then maybe you'll be fine. But know what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are that you could get killed. So I always sort of told people when I was a carpenter, I was a good carpenter and I built this console you're leaning on. I built the studio and all the offices in here and I was very good at what I did. I did it for a long time. I had a lot of training and I worked with some good people and I had a lot of diversity and I ended up being a very pretty accomplished and pretty good carpenter. And I would tell people, yeah, I'm a journeyman carpenter. I'm a good carpenter. And they'd say, you know, good for you. And then later on in life, when it came to comedy, I would say, oh, no, I'm I'm funny. I'm better than most guys. And they'd go, okay, okay, right. Just meaning you're not supposed to say it. But to me, it's just another trade and I'm good at it because I've done it for a long time and I trained at it and I have some natural ability at it. But I don't look at it any different than carpentry. I was a good carpenter. I'm a good comedian or humorist. But is it also like, is there an element of fake it till you make it? For me, there wasn't because I wasn't a guy who took headshots and went out on auditions or anything. I was sort of like, I am no good at acting or comedy or writing, and I don't want anyone to think I'm any good at it until I'm actually good at it because I don't want to get caught in that position where I have to perform or write a sitcom episode or do something that I'm not capable of doing. So before I fly the jet fighter, I want to make sure I'm overly qualified. I don't want to fake my way into the cockpit and then find myself sitting in a jet fighter and crash that thing. What you're talking about with strengths and weaknesses. I'm not sure how the schooling system works here, but in Sweden, I would say that it's just what you are saying that you shouldn't do. I mean, if you are weak in German, teacher is going to make you work even more mm -hmm. to be better at it. Instead yeah. of like, whereas if you're good in crafts and art or something like that, you could put energy into becoming a really good carpenter, for instance, in school. Do you understand what I'm yeah. talking about? I think it's good when you're young and when you're old and in between. <laughs> so I think I've covered everything. <laughs> I think it's good to work on weaknesses. When you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> when you're dead, you should really start focusing on a third language. <laughs> no, um, when you're in school, that's the deal. If you're good at math, you should work a little harder in English, as we say out here at least, or language. And if you're good at language or in art, maybe you should work a little harder in math. That's good. But at a certain point, when you become an adult and you want to get paid, better to focus on the things that you have some ability at rather than the things you struggle with because it's going to be a struggle to get paid. Now, that being said, it's good to challenge yourself and to work on those weak spots in your game, so to speak. But it's a system's job, I think, to take children and go, you're good at science, you're good at art, but you're not good with language, you'll focus on language and see if getting better, because oftentimes improvement in the topics and subjects you're bad at helps you get better in the topics and subjects you're good at. But like I said, at a certain point, pick a topic and try to get paid. But do you challenge your weaknesses still? I fight my tendencies on a fairly daily basis. And I try to think, I'm really examining that question because I'm really, it's something that I preach a lot and I'm trying to think how much of it I actually practice. There's certain things that I do not handle and I don't touch at all, for instance, finances. I don't know the taxes, all that you have to incorporate. I don't know what's a write-off. I have a guy. I pay that guy. I don't deal with it. I don't know if I'd be good at it. I don't care to learn. Like So there's a kind of an aspect of it, which is I'm just going to pay this guy to do this thing and I'll go to my grave never knowing the difference between a loan-out corporation and an LLC, which I think is a loan-out corporation. That's how little I know. And that's fine. Then there are other things that are more fall under the heading of more emotional shortcomings. 
and the emotional shortcomings are ones that I do try to work on. I try to be conscious of them and I try to work on them. Like with my wife, it's not my, it's not my impulse to go up and pay someone a compliment and say, thank you. You've really been working hard around here. I really appreciate what you've done or nice job. You know, it's my, my impulse is what's next. So if you were married to me and you said, here's what I did today, or here's what I accomplished this week, my impulse is to go, all right, but what's coming up next week? Because that's how I am. And I, it's important, especially to my wife, but to most people, to stop and go, great, thank you. Nice Good job. job. Yeah. Great job. Okay. Now let's talk about what's going on next week instead of right on to what's, next, what's going on next week. At the same time, you're very self-made in a way, right? Oh, yeah. No, I'm self-made even though the people that are around me – Yeah, they all get paid by me. So I'm, they're, I'm, it's either me being self-made or me being self-made enough to pay someone else to make me self-made. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I'm, I'm so self-made. I pay someone to clean my pool and mow my lawn. But I don't look at that. I'm not one of these guys that's like, hey, I'll mow my own lawn. Hey, I'll wash my own car. Hey, I'll skim my own pool. No, my plan is to make enough money, be busy enough, and be sought after enough where I can pay someone to do stuff that I can do. I just choose not to. And you've led that life for quite a long time now, haven't you? Yeah, it took a long time for me to figure out the transition from being a poor person to being a wealthy person, which was a tough transition because I, I had many, many years of being a poor person in my brain. As a matter of fact, I just spoke to my wife last night. I wasn't trying to make her feel bad, but she's in New York, and she said, yeah, well, I got back to the room. I ordered some room service, and I said, I still can't do that. And she's like, why not? And I go, I just can't order room service. Like, it's, it's too expensive. It's a $30 hamburger. And then there's a 15% gratuity added on. And when I get up in the morning, and I do these crazy book tours and live shows. I go on these crazy one-week crazy events. If you see my itinerary, how early I start, how late they go, and how many shows, and this and that. And I will not order a pot of coffee to be brought to the room in the morning because it's $22. And I just – I'll go down to the lobby and spend $4 and get a I, – I, of course, I have $22. I could probably write it off. It's part of the business trip. But there's just a part of my wiring that just is a poor person. And I can't have people bring me food on a silver tray and pay them $33. It's not even, it's not even about $33. I'll give you $33 today. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, metaphorically. <laughs> and, and not think twice about it. It's just the fact that somebody's bringing me food on a cart with wheels on it. Like, But isn't there an element also of, I mean, I want coffee now. I don't yes. want it in 25 minutes. When... Absolutely. I would love, yes, I have to get up. At 6.15, I'm going to go do Howard Stern, then I'm going to go do Fox and Friends, then I'm doing Good Morning, whatever, and then I'm doing O'Reilly that night or whatever it is. And, yes, when I get up at 6.15, I want a pot of coffee at the front door. That's what I want. But I can get dressed, get out, go down to the lobby and get a cup of coffee for $4, and it's going to take an extra 11 minutes. I'm not worth it. I'll wait for it. Can we get back to the confidence thing? Because when I read up on you, it feels like there was no one, except perhaps for the people in sports, but no one built your confidence growing up. No, not at all. And so the good news is, is I, I, I feel lucky, although I rarely have that feeling, but I'm, I'm, I have a certain degree of gratitude for the fact that I get to own wherever I am in life. So it's funny because not where you're sitting, but a warehouse nearby, there's a bunch of cars and race cars and things I'm working on and stuff like that. And then uh, whenever I show somebody the, the warehouse with the race cars, they always stop and they go, so your dad was pretty much pretty into cars, huh? And did he expose you to this? Or was this kind of thing you and he did at a young age kind of thing? And I say, no, not at all. He's not into cars. He's never even been here. He lives five miles from here. He's never set foot in this place. He has no idea what's going on with these cars. And then they go, 
well, how did you get into cars? And I go, well, by the way, do you think everyone is a junkie's dad was a junkie? It's yeah. like, no, I, I like cars. This mm. is my own thing. Comedy's my own thing. Podcasting's my own thing. This building's my own thing. Whatever it is I did, carpentry, teaching boxing, cars, podcasting, comedy, stand-up books, whatever, nothing from my family or from my parents or from my neighborhood or from my teachers or from my friends. So I get to own it, meaning I know a guy and his dad does outdoor signage, like big banners and things, you know, when the Academy Awards come along and they hang them from the street post and the vinyl signs, you know. And I ran into the guy a few months back and I said, uh, what are you up to? And he's like, well, I'm doing vinyl signs. And I, there's a part of me... Now, he's happy. He's successful. His dad has a successful business. He gave it to him. I'm sure he takes a lot of pride in how he probably innovated the business and moved it to the next level and stuff like that. But the, the part of me thinks to myself, you're doing vinyl signs. Why? No one in high school said, I'm going to do vinyl signs. You know, I'm a, I'll be a fireman. I'll be a doctor. I'm doing vinyl signage, outdoor signage. So you're comfortable. You're making a good living. You've taken over the family business. There's a lot to be proud of. But do you even know why you're put on this earth? Because yeah. I don't think you do. You're doing vinyl signage. I have the luxury of having super poor, out-of-it, apathetic parents and a school system and friends so that I know exactly what I want to do because I'm doing it, which is sort of pure, and I, and I like that. I can understand it. And you were also talking about sort of adjusting from being a poor person to a rich person. In what way did you find it? I mean, did you just save money for the first part until you understood, well, I, maybe I can spend some? And I remember little things like I always drove very old, beat up pickup trucks when I was a carpenter. I had to drive a pickup truck and I couldn't afford a new truck. I never had credit. I was never had a credit card or any kind of credit, so I couldn't go buy a new pickup truck. So it was always old, used pickup trucks from the newspaper. And as an example, the first car I ever bought that was a regular car that had air conditioning and power steering and it was an automatic and things like that was a Nissan Maxima that was like two years old. And to me, that was as much new car as I'd ever seen. You know, it was two years old. It had, you know, 23,000 miles on it. I remember the interior was like velour, but I said, can you switch it to leather? And they said, yeah, for 800 bucks, we can switch it to leather or whatever it is. And they switched it to leather. And I remember driving around thinking, my God, I've arrived. I'm driving a regular car with power windows and air. There's cold air blowing out of the vents and stuff. Oh, it's automatic. The stereo works. It's awesome. There's no lumber rack and no big bed in the back or anything. And uh, then we did some sort of event for uh, Loveline a million years ago, and it was at the uh, Playboy Mansion. And I came pulling up in my Nissan Maxima, and one of the producers of Loveline said like something like, what are you driving a Datsun for? And I said, what do you mean? It's brand new. I'm uh, two years old, but pretty nice, right? And he's like, maybe if you're a school teacher or something, but you should have a BMW or Lexus or something. And I remember sort of shaking it off going, hey, man, this is a regular car, man. It's a real car. So that to me was like my my Hollywood, first Hollywood big purchase, you know, it's like yeah. just a Datsun basically. But that was a big leap for me, you know. As I have understood, I mean, do you consider yourself having a middle-class background? Yes and no. And I had a middle-class upbringing in the sense that I grew up in a home. I didn't grow up in the projects or an apartment building. I grew up in a house. And the house was in a middle-class neighborhood in North Hollywood. But here are the caveats. The house was a one-bedroom, one-bathroom. I slept on the service porch. My mom was on food stamps and welfare. The house was my grandmother's second house that she bought as a rental property in 1951 for $10,000 and ended up just having her flunky daughter and the grandkids kind of flop out there. So while 
I was in the midst of a middle class environment. We were food stamps and welfare. Yeah, and you were always hungry. Yeah, I was. Oh, I was. A, I was a big eater, and I was very active as a kid, and very athletic as a kid, and, and very much just I was sort of like a train that was going down the tracks a hundred miles an hour, and you had to keep shoveling coal into it, and there just wasn't much coal around the house. My mom was kind of a health food hippie. She didn't buy anything, and I was. Just, Starving all the time. So let's go to other. I, I went to other people's houses and ate. Basically, yeah, that was my big move. So you have sort of a working class, middle class background in a way, or a it's l- not really working because my mom never worked. No. She just was depressed. Yeah. She's got welfare, but my dad worked not in a robust fashion, but he became like a substitute school teacher, and yeah. But it, it, it see, it says it's funny because you say. Just for clarity, it's like working class, you think sort of blue collar. There was no blue collar. The family was very small. My grandmother worked at the Veterans Administration as sort of a counselor or something. So she worked for the VA. My dad was like sort of a substitute school teacher and then like sort of a school teacher. And then no one else worked. So there was no blue collar work. It was all kind of white collar, but real low end, not get paid white collar. But what I'm trying to get at is that I interviewed a, an English author uh, some time back, and she said that whenever it's someone with a poor background, or she was talking about the working class, as she is really much comes from the working class, whenever a person from the working class earns money, they're going to splurge like crazy. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't sound like you've ever had that phase or... No, I mean, usually it's feast or famine. You either are hanging on to every nickel because you think it's the last nickel you're ever going to see because you never saw one growing up, or you go out and buy 27-inch rims for your Denali and decide to put a $14,000 stereo system in it And when you sell the car, it's going to be worth five grand less than before you put the system in the thing. You know, impractical decisions like that, going to strip clubs and making it rain, so to speak. For me, I was – it took me a while to sort of catch on to the fact that you can buy a new car and drive a new car because you can afford it. But other than that, I didn't have a lot of energy or hang-ups or whatever. My thing was – I would like to be pragmatic about money. Your family fucked you up enough. Let's not have them fuck this part up, too. You know, don't don't have a whole bunch of weird energy around things. And again, you say, well, what about room service? Well, for me, room service is a little more just low self-esteem and a little more just sort of kind of pragmatic. Like there's a part of me that's sort of like, I don't care how much money I make. I don't want to spend $33 for a club sandwich that's subpar. Like, I just don't. There's a diner on the corner on the street level, and for $9, I can get an omelet that I'm going to enjoy more. But And that's just kind of where I'm at. Would you buy, for instance, I don't know much about cars, but would you buy a Bugatti Veyron? I would not buy a Bugatti Veyron, well, for a couple of reasons. One, I would never drive it on the street because I don't want to be looked at and who wants to deal with that. And I'd like to live a sort of lower key existence. I will and have spent $400,000 for a car, but I'll spend $400,000 for a car that's an old car that I'm pretty sure will be worth a million dollars five years from the time I spent the $400,000 for it. That, that much, I'll do that, okay. no problem. Mm. And, and for me, it's no different than would you buy a $400,000 watch or house if you knew it was going to be worth a million dollars five years from now? And the answer is, yeah. Well, for <laughs> me, it's a car yeah. because I know that market. But no, I don't. I've, I frequently have bought cars at over $100,000, but I wouldn't buy a new car that will be worth less than that five years from now. That's the way I would. I understand it. that. I said that I was nervous at the beginning, and it's also a little bit because I heard you talk about your hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. 
Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And yeah, I've been looking at your tattoos. Yeah. So what, what can you what can you say about me? So far so good on the Swedish. <laughs> very blonde, very like fifth member of ABBA, so circa 1977. Thank you, I guess. <laughs> hey, you could do a lot worse. You have a European vibe even though maybe a lot of that is is just uh me knowing what I know coming in. Obviously, you're married. I see a wedding ring on you. I see you have a Rolex, some Mariner, so it seems like you're doing okay for yourself. I imagine you have a daughter or a child because I'm seeing a, a name on your arm and, a, and what looks like a child with a balloon that's shaped like a heart, which should symbolically stand for something, maybe more than your wife. Yeah. But it smacks to me of a daughter. It is a son, but anyway. A son. I don't know why the heart made it feminine for me. Mm. And uh, I, I'm guessing that's his name or above it, or that, oh, I can't name. see it from there. Love. Yeah. Oh, his name is Love. Yes. And the uh, the <laughs> O is a heart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's how he, he likes hearts. He's into that. All right. Other than that, I mean, you know, the thing that's funny about me is I don't have the energy or necessarily – I do have the hypervigilance, which is I sort of notice everything, but I don't spend large amounts of time – trying to break down people that I may never see again. Mm. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. No, 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 but, but that's fine. I do a sort of a, I have a very insanely practical mind. Like I'll run into people and they'll run into me and they'll go, do you remember my name? Or do you remember that guy? And I'll go, no. And they'll go, well, why not? And I'll go, because in my mind, whatever transaction we had, once it was complete, I was on to the next Whatever, and there's only so much room in the hard drive to store information. It, it's weird. Like, I'm bad at birthdays. I'm bad at holidays, anniversaries. Like, all the stuff that means go back and sort of dig up this memory. I asked my assistant what the name of the street I live on the other day was. Now, I'd only lived in the house for two years, or about a year and a half, and I've moved around a lot lately. But... I honestly don't know the address of the house I live in right now. And people say, well, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I go, it doesn't come up. No. It's not something I need to know. I have a cheat sheet in my wallet of social securities and addresses and things, you know, that all the information that all I need for everything. And that's it. I don't walk around with it up in my head. I'm, I'm trying to think of something new, not remember something old. So that's sort of how... I don't remember stuff that has to do with me either. I, I just, vents I was at, things I said, people I've met, stuff I've done. It, it just, it's all behind me. That sounds great in a way, but also it sounds a little bit, I mean, do you ever sit with your wife and discuss, do you remember when we were? No, no. And uh, she probably would enjoy a little more, if, do you remember when? Yeah. <laughs> versus what's next. Do you take any pictures? I don't, but everyone else does. So it's one of my familial things is my family never had cameras. We never took pictures. I, I got that bad wiring, too. I don't take pictures. I don't have a camera. I was thinking to myself the other day, I've never taken a selfie in my life. But I've also practically realized everywhere I go, whatever I do, somebody's taking a picture. And when you and I are done today, you and I are going to take a picture. You got your camera. Yeah. Right. And I won't have that picture, but if I ever need that picture, I know it exists. Yeah. And that's the way I sort of go through life. How about your kids, then? 
my wife takes enough pictures of them to line the inner hull of a oil tanker vessel. I mean, literally could line the entire hull of that thing with the amount of pictures she's taken of the children. And then what happens is, is when we go to some event like the Indianapolis 500 or I go do some car racing event or something, someone will always be taking pictures. And then they email them to me. So I never have to take anything. It's just people constantly taking pictures and then sending me the picture. So that's it. But it's bad because I love pictures of cars, but I'm not as crazy about pictures of people. Okay. I don't have okay. anything against it. But, I mean, my house is lined with pictures of my kids. And the big thing will be at the end of their lifetime – do they have 123,000 pictures of themselves or they have 118,000 pictures of themselves? I'm okay with 118,000 pictures. Of yeah. Them, but that's me. And if it was up to you, you would sort of have loads of cars on the, on the walls instead. I don't. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's more me. But the picture can have me in it driving the car. That's okay. the thing. There's plenty of pictures in the hallway behind you. Of cars and me driving the cars, but I'm wearing a helmet, so you, and sunglasses, so you can't really see, you know, who's driving it. But those I those I enjoy. All right, I'm very fascinated, and I hope you don't mind me asking more about your personality when it comes to sort of whatever you whatever you want to ask. Chris. Thank you. You are really a, a pioneer, an entrepreneur. How dare you? I mean, <laughs> well, aren't you ever? Scared of trying stuff? No, I I believe that everybody has a job to do on themselves, and that job is to sort of calibrate their inner compass. And once your inner compass is calibrated, and it's honestly calibrated, it cannot be calibrated factoring you in, meaning... If an interview with you and I does not go well, I can't just go, that fucking guy's an asshole. Screw him, man. F that guy. I have to think to myself, wait a minute. What did I do? How did I participate in this? What what was my role? And then let me very honestly assess this relationship that we're having, this brief relationship that we're having right now. Let me stand outside of it And really try to think, now, whose fault was this? And what was your role in this? And that way, if I can honestly do that with removing my ego and bravado and self-awareness and whatever else, if I can remove that from the equation, then I can have a very honestly calibrated inner compass. And once my inner compass is very honestly and objectively calibrated and you think, well, how do you objectively do something for yourself, inside yourself? Well, I have that background of my parents brought me up as if I was a stranger in the house and I can pretty well go, what was my role? And do I owe Chris an apology? Does he owe me an apology? Should I send him uh, a bouquet of flowers? Was I was I wrong here? Was I out of line? And then when you honestly calibrate yourself, then you can just go through life and you don't even have to slow down to make decisions. You can go, I want to do this. And everyone around you will go, whoa, 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 hold on a second. That's dangerous or that's a lot of work or they, you, could lose your, you could lose a bunch of money or what are you going to do? And you just go, I want to do it. <laughs> and they go, but, 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 but. And you go, hey. I'm calibrated, and when I say I want to do something or when I say I don't want to do something, I know it's the right decision because I'm calibrated. I'm always recalibrating. So I'll make a decision to buy a house and sell a house and to do something, let's just say financially, that is you know, into millions of dollars. It takes me six minutes. I don't wring my hands. I don't go home and pace. I don't call in my group and have a discussion about it. It's I want to do this. I want to do that. This is a good way to go. And because I trust my personal calibration so well, 
I'm able just to go through life doing these things. So I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to, I'm going to build a studio. I'm going to hire employees. I'm going to do other podcasts. And I never really waffle. I never really think, ooh, man, well, what if you lose your pants or you may never get that money back? By the way, I don't say that that's an impossibility. I never say, oh, you're going to make millions or this is going to work for sure. I never do any of that. I just go, this is what I want to do now. And that's what I'm going to do because that's how I'm calibrated. And how do you calibrate? The first thing you have to do is try to shed a lot of the stuff you may have heard growing up sort of thing. Maybe your parents filled your head with you're the best. Maybe your parents filled your head with you're the worst. <laughs> See if we can get that off the table because that's not going to help. You're not the best and you're not the worst. Somebody told you that. They probably shouldn't have either way. And I appreciate what they're trying to do and telling you you were the best, but it's not helping in my calibration process. So let's see if we can sort of take the past and at least put it aside for now. And let's see if we can really honestly take a look at ourselves. The next thing is, is get in the habit of standing outside of the conversation and judging it like you're judging a tennis match that you're not playing in versus I'm in the game. Come on, I want that ball to be in. I just hit that ball. Come on. Well, it was a foot out. Yeah, but it was my ball, and I want it in. Well, if it's out, it's out. So get used to that, and get used to just sitting there in that big raised wooden chair looking at it, and if it's out, it's out, or if it's in, it's in, but it don't factor in who hit it. Sometimes it's you, sometimes it's somebody you work with, sometimes it's your wife, sometimes it's your kid, sometimes it's your enemy, sometimes it's someone on the road. But remove yourself as best you can and just really honestly think, and they're little tips or little games, which uh, everyone hates, but you should probably play them with yourself anyway. You know, when you come in and you tell your wife, I did this interview with uh, Adam Carolla and he was a pompous dickhead. And uh, I hated the guy, and he was rude, and uh, he was just a prick. Your wife should say, and now you should say in the calibration system that I discuss, if I talk to Adam, what would he say? Would he describe it that way? Would he say, well, why didn't the interview go well? Oh, because I'm a dickhead. <laughs> no, he would probably say something. Yeah. And then as you start getting into that, Your wife says, well, what would Adam say? And then you think, well, I was 10 minutes late. I guess he'd probably say I was late. You weren't, by the way. The people should know Chris was right on time. But the <laughs> point is, is now we're getting somewhere. Hmm. All right. So you were 10 minutes late. Yeah. And it took me a little while to set up the equipment or whatever. So we said we we're going to start at 11. Maybe we didn't start till 11.22. So I guess he's said he did have somewhere to go afterwards. So now we're getting somewhere. Okay, so maybe it's not just because Adam's a dickhead or he hates me for no reason. This notion, by the way, that people hate you or have it in for you. They don't know you. That's a narcissistic thought. Mm. It's a negative narcissistic thought, but it's a narcissistic thought nonetheless. When the guy cuts you off on the freeway, he doesn't do it because he hates you. He's doing it because he's trying to get to work. And you're flying the bird out the window and honking your horn, and this guy's thinking, who is this person? Well, you should know enough to know he doesn't know and he doesn't care. It's not even worth you honking the horn or flying the bird out the window because all he's doing is trying to get to work. It's nothing personal. Stop internalizing everything that happens to you. It starts at school where you get a bad grade because the teacher hates you. Teacher doesn't hate you. You're turning in subpar work. So let's go ahead and internalize some of this stuff. Let's... Try to play devil's advocate and think about, well, what would the other person say? What, what, what would they say? The person that cut me off on the freeway, what would they say? Would they say I was out driving around just trying to cut people off? Or would they say I was in a, in a hurry trying to get to the airport? And now we're calibrating. And now we're trusting our decisions. And then at a certain point when you get so tuned in, you get to the point where you just go, This is what we're doing because this is what I said and this is what I want to do. And I'm so tuned in 
and my calibration is so precise and so accurate that I will never stop. I'm not going to question myself, and I'm not going to wring my hands and watch life go by while I take two years making decisions that should take two minutes. Mm. That's what we should strive for. It also means being comfortable with the notion that you may not always be right. You may not always make money on whatever it is you're doing or whatever decision you made may not have turned out to be the best. That's okay. It's still your decision that you made at that time, and it's a good thing to learn from if it doesn't work out, and it's all part of the calibration system. But would you say that you are lust-driven? Because it sounds like that. Lust in what what meaning of the word lust? I, I'm not sure, because I would assume that in my life, I would assume that perhaps for 25 of those years, I was sort of angst-driven. Mm-hmm. I tried to avoid angst. Right. Whereas I'm now, since I started doing the podcast and sort of listening more to my inner calibration or what have you, it's more lust-driven. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's what turns me on. Here's what I want to do. Here's yes. what I want to accomplish. Exactly. Yes. And it feeds on itself because once you get out of, you know, I always tell people, get out of save a a nickel mode and get into make a dollar mode. Don't approach life in fear. If I've got to save every nickel, you'll never make any money. It's hard to be in save every nickel mode and make a bunch of money mode. This topic we're discussing bleeds into and has something to do with money and finance, but this is not the main bulk of the topic. The topic is life. Life in 2015 involves money and a lot of the objects cars, homes, and whatever we're talking about involve money, but this is more of a calibration of how to go through life and thus probably make more money. But I don't want people to think I'm giving you some trick to make money. It's a more of a sort of trick to live life. And thus you do make more money. Yeah. But being a mode that is proactive and think to yourself, If I just go into make a dollar mode, I don't have to be in save a nickel mode. And as I used to say to the writers at the man show way back in the day, I'd say, don't be a joke warehouse, be a joke factory. Don't store and catalog jokes and hide them away or put them under one roof crank out jokes, being the mode of, and you don't even need to keep your jokes because so many are coming off the conveyor belt of your joke factory or your comedy factory. But if you start getting into a mode of, oh, I got this joke, I got to hang on to it with both hands and work it for 10 years. In that 10 years, you're not creating more stuff. Mm. So, you know, the thing about the podcast is, you know, I do them five days a week and they just go up into the ether and they blow away and it's time to do the next one. Be in that factory mode, not in the warehouse mode. When we're talking about drive or how people perceive you, perhaps, I mean, I would say that you are perhaps a person that people often say, who does he think he is about? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes. I, I'm, it kind of depends. I, I don't know how I'm perceived abroad, but here we have this camp and that camp and you're all in one camp or you're all in the other camp. And if you go back and forth or straddle, it doesn't really, they don't really appreciate it over what, here. What, what's your opposing camps to you, I mean? Well, over here, I'm looked at, well, I shouldn't say I'm looked at, but the, the more vocal, I, I don't know if you would say that the media is very liberal here, but by and large, they're, they're liberal a liberal media in the sense that I tell people all the time, Bill O'Reilly's very conservative and he's on Fox. And I am friends with, well, everyone in Hollywood is fairly liberal. I mean, for the most part, very liberal. Okay. And so I'm friends with Sarah Silverman and Seth MacFarlane and very liberal people. And Then I go do O'Reilly's show. And then everyone comes up to me and goes, how's that doing with O'Reilly? And I go, it's fine. It's fine. It's 
got to be tough, right? I go, no, it's it's good. It's a nice guy, it's, you know. Yeah, but uh, how's it working? How's it working? And I go, it's working fine. And yeah, but at parties and stuff, you know, you got to hang out with Sarah Silverman. What's that like? And I go. Oh, I get it. We have a very liberal media. See, I say to people, why wouldn't you ask me that question about you're talking to Sarah Silverman or Seth MacFarlane? What, how's that? What's that like? How's that? Uh, how are they treating you? Are they okay at the parties? Like, of course, it's a very liberal media and everyone's uh, somewhat brainwashed by it because everyone asks me all the time, like quietly, quietly. People come up to me at my kids' sporting events and a guy, a dad will come up to me and go, yeah. I saw you on O'Reilly. I like you on O'Reilly, but uh, don't say anything. <laughs> and then I'll go walk away. And I'm like, why is he scared? Okay. And he's scared because he wants to work. And it's not good to be on O'Reilly and live in this town and work. So it's a fairly liberal media, but it's also very vocal media. And they love to just call me everything. And homophobic. It's always love homophobic and uh, racist and misogynistic and, you know, all this stuff. So I speak my mind. Sometimes they're jokes. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes I'm just speaking my mind, you know. Mm -hmm. But either way, that is the sort of general perception, at least in this liberal, outspoken, very loud vocal media. So I get labeled with a lot of that stuff. But you can call me homophobic all you want. It's not going to work. I mean, you can call me an arsonist all you want. It's it's not going to work. I, ha- I have to set a fire. Yeah. Until I set a fire. Whatever it is you'd like to call me, it's never going to work because I know what's going on inside my head. I have no feelings about gay people other than I always said I wish there were more gay people so we'd have better neighborhoods around here. And that's about it. But you're not going to convince me. The one I love the most is like the misogynistic one where they're like, oh, I feel sorry for Adam's wife and Adam's daughter. My wife has a much better life than I do, maybe 10 times better. And my daughter's probably 15 to 20 times better than me. Like they're in the swimming pool right now. I'm at work. So don't worry about them. But are you a feminist? No. No, I'm not a feminist because I see very distinct differences between men and women, and I'm not of the group that would like to combine us together. Uh, my wife does very different things for my kids, and I do very different things, and her skill set is something that I don't possess in terms of how she treats the kids or how, or just how she's wired, how she approaches life, how she goes through life. Very different than mine. And then... She can't do what I do, so it actually works out pretty nicely. But I, does that have to do with gender? Gender, yeah. Well, here we're trying to kind of create one big gender. We're trying to take one gender. No, I. as far as the feminist stuff goes, I don't care if my airline pilot is a male or female. And I don't care about any... Danica Patrick drives race cars. God bless her. Ronda Rousey kicks ass. Good for her. I don't. I don't have a second of that. The problem with all movements is they they start off very well and well intentioned, and then at some point they spill over into some other realm. Which is, for instance, I don't need female firefighters. I don't need male firefighters. I need a test for firefighters that involves fifteen chin-ups and 50 push-ups and a 30-pound hose pack and you going up five flights of stairs. Now, whoever passes that test, male, female, Caitlyn Jenner, in between, doesn't matter to me. I just want the test and that I want the best fireman. And I can accept that men are probably more suited for that job. Can you, in 30 seconds, tell me about the tour that you are about to embark on? I'm coming out to the UK, and I'm doing some uh, live podcasting there. I'm not sure how many nights I'm doing, or I don't I even have they, the information I in think front there's of one in England. There's one in England, and I'm also doing the uh, Goodwood Festival, which is nothing to do with comedy. It's all cars. So, of course, my passion is cars, and there's a huge vintage event there, which... Uh, I recommend people come out and see me and then come see me do the Goodwood Festival as well. But um, I've never done comedy overseas. I've, I haven't gotten any further than Canada. 
And uh, I just thought, well, let's go to the UK and do some comedy. And also, I'm working on a documentary that involves Ferrari and Ford and Le Mans. And so there's some little work to be done in Europe for that. Would you like to recommend anything, something, anything? Well, there's a self-serving side that says, uh, I made a documentary that I'm very proud of that has to do with uh, Paul Newman and his driving. Yeah. And it's not his acting, it's his driving. He won four national championships. And I do believe you can find that on iTunes and Amazon and things like that. So uh, that, and I do an inspirational podcast called Take a Knee where we have this sort of conversation where we just sort of one-on-one and discuss with people what makes them work and motivate and lots of really successful people and how they got there. So I would recommend those two things. Thank you. And who do you think I should interview? Let's see. We already got me, so it's going to be kind of a downhill ride after that. I think you should talk to Margaret Cho. I'm just pulling that name out of my hat. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Yes, that was the one and only Adam Ace Carolla. And I wonder if I might have told him that I I would do an interview with Margaret Cho just after this one. Anyway, that one will be coming later this fall, so stay tuned. Farvet International is made by me and Lovisa Olsson. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. It's called Varvet Pod there. Talk to you in two weeks. This is Christopher Triumph saying bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.